This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Joe Pappalardo ranks as one of the best science journalists of our time in what will likely be known as the golden age of popular science journalism. He's the guy you go to when you want to know anything about aviation, Mars, rockets, space, Elon Musk, drones, tech, defense, you name it. He goes to rocket launches like most people go to the grocery store. The mad lad even wrote a book about the history of sunflowers, and it's amazing. He's the perfect blend of old school journalist. He cut his teeth in a smoky newsroom in Mexico City before covering 9-11 for Time magazine and futuristic data wizard. He worked as a Pentagon correspondent after a stint as a PI. He's a longtime writer for Popular Mechanics and covers SpaceX for National Geographic. And all through his career, he has maintained a calm neutrality with politics. Able to appear on CNN and Fox News for the same story, and when he pulls out the earpiece, everyone is happy. His latest book, Red Morning Sky, is an account of the Wild West that makes Deadwood look like a soap opera. Please welcome Joe Pappalardo. Joe, it's good to see you, my man. How you been? I have been well. I cannot complain. Things have been... Treating me very well here on the coast in South Texas, so which is close to uh, something that's very near and dear to you, right? <laughs> the near, near and dear, nearly obsessive at this point. Uh, Starbase is only a couple hours away, and that's Texas close. So I'm uh, one of the nearest freelance journalists that National Geographic has to Elon Musk's spaceport down there, where he's launching and blowing up experimental rockets on a pretty regular <laughs> basis. So uh, so that's good fortune for me because I get to go down there and see the flights and write about it and keep a hand in on what, what uh, Elon is doing in Texas, at least. I love seeing... I love seeing the launches. Like, I love seeing you, the pictures you have and it's like... Um, it's always, like, so joyful to see. Uh, it's like a really cool ex- experience. Um, I mean, you're like, you're pretty much go to all of them, right? I try to. Um, this time I'm I'm sort of chagrined because I would normally just go down there if I didn't have an assignment. But National Geographic kind of has me on a, on a quick reaction sort of footing and the wireless connection down there is horrible. So to publish something right after the test saying what happened and what it means and why it's important and, and did it work because um, there's very specific metrics I'm looking for. Um, I have to be at a computer and I'm going to be home watching, streaming it, you know, watching the SpaceX feed like everybody else. Um, so that stinks. But having said that, I've been to a ton of them. I've seen a lot of them blow up and, uh, (laughs) it it doesn't, it doesn't get old and you get kind of a Stockholm syndrome. I mean, everyone is a SpaceX fan during a launch day. Everyone is the fan of whatever space company is trying to get it done that day. So you, you see a lot of joy, even from you know, seasoned journalists who don't like Elon Musk or, you know, doubt some of the things the company's doing. And there's a lot of journalists that 
see it for what it is, which is they're breaking some really serious new ground and we're seeing it in real time. But um, and objectively, that that is what's happening. But you can't not root for him that day. So, yeah. you know, the day before, the day after, you know, he's a scoundrel and they're, you know, <laughs> and they're yeah. too dominant. They're, they're too good. They're they're too reckless, whatever it is. But that day, you just want to see that rocket go up. So what's that moment like when it with takeoff? Like, is does the air change? Um, what does it feel like physically? Well, it depends on how close you are. Um, I mean, I've been close as three, <laughs> three miles at one time, um, but it's visceral. I mean, you feel it, you know, you, it, you can feel the rumble, of the engines in your stomach. Um, and you can just imagine from, from a distance from five miles away, if you can feel that just the power of what's underneath that, that rocket, that control, very controlled explosion. And you can hear the air tearing. It's a very violent experience as well. Um, that rocket is clawing its way through the atmosphere to, to, to escape it. And that always, that always strikes me. Um, just because again, it's a very visceral, it's what you're hearing, what you're feeling, not just what you're seeing. You're seeing a spectacle. You could see more details on a stream probably, but, um, especially as it gets higher and higher, but there's nothing that beats that immediate gut punch when the engines ignite and you see it lift off. That is just the, that is just the coolest. And if anyone who hasn't seen it, go to Cape Canaveral or, or go to one of these, you know, go to South Texas or wherever, wherever the rockets are seen and get a taste of it. You know, just, it's something to see at least once. So I recently met, uh, Charlie Duke. He was uh, Capcom on Apollo 11 and he was on, uh, 16. Uh, and I asked him about that. And I mean, it's like, I love that era of astronaut. Cause it's mostly like Southern boys who are just geniuses, but kind of soft-spoken, very few words. And he was kind of nonchalant about it. And I mean, he said like, he's like, yeah, my heart rate went higher than I thought was like possible. Um, <laughs> would you, uh, would you hop on a, um, on a rocket yeah. if you could? Oh yeah. The one I've been thinking about, even a Branson rocket, I would. Nice. Okay. Orbital, so um, orbital wouldn't matter. I'm, I'm in. What's it like? I'm this will this should all be very explained like I'm five. Um, <laughs> so what is what's the difference between like the Branson rocket? Uh, that's the ver the guy, the Virgin, yeah, Virgin, um, and R Sir Richard Branson back in the day, you know, to his to his credit, I'm gonna probably say a lot of mean things about him, but to his credit, <laughs> was trying to get into a, a space tourism suborbital launch from an airplane business, um, and he went about that and it's taken a really long time for them to actually have paid launches. Um, but they're doing it. They're actually going to redesign their, um, their carrier system and their rocket. And, and they're, it's, it's a, it, it's a rocket powered space plane. It, it launches from a mothership at altitude, whips in the space, spends about five minutes weightless and then glides back down to a runway. So it's a space plane. Uh, reusable, pretty cool. But the problem is that the technology has, and really SpaceX, but also other companies have really pushed past what these guys are doing. They're carrying astronauts to the space station. They're landing robots on the moon, hopefully soon. Um, you know, they're they're building Starship, um, which is which is incredible. Um, 
United Launch Alliance has a new heavy lifter coming out, the Vulcan. There's a lot going on. Uh, The space tourists that people are interested in are like this Japanese billionaire, Meizawa, who paid Elon Musk. uh, He didn't actually say how many, but billions of dollars to basically charter Starship for a trip around the moon. That's one of its first missions. So that is the state of the art. It really makes going suborbital for five minutes almost like a yawn. Um, And and the amount of money and lives at its cost, um, that effort makes the space tourism thing seem very trivial in comparison. So having said all that, I would go on the rocket tomorrow if they asked me. (laughs) Like even Apollo 11. Like where the risk is so like Nixon is already written the, the like sad letter or the, the sad speech on they're probably not going to get home. Buy the, buy the ticket, take the ride, you know, as the great man once said, um, you're in it, you're in a risky thing. And, and right now, the, the emphasis is starting to shift away from, well, it has to be safety first all the time, um, which sounds really screwed up to say, but. <laughs> That might be a healthy thing for development because when you th- when you think about it, you know Apollo was very risky. It was very wasteful, redundant, and they took a lot of risks with the astronauts on board and even in the training. and And they died, and more of them probably should have died. Um, um, credit to NASA that they didn't, but still, you know, then the risk posture changes entirely for shuttle, and astronauts still die. Shuttles you know, break up on it and, and, you know, rising and coming back down. Um, and they're paralyzed by the safety culture. And now along comes SpaceX with this seemingly reckless, we're going to break things, we're going to test things, we're going to blow stuff up. But at the end of the day, their stuff works and they develop very quickly. That's so anti-NASA, but it's taking all the worst parts of NASA and taking it out and taking some of the innovative parts and the risk-taking from the original sort of NASA Apollo template, putting it in there. And it's kind of a good mix because NASA needs more risk and SpaceX needs less risk when it comes to operations. So you get those two corporate cultures to have a baby. Ideally, (laughs) it's the one that can move fast in development and then go slow, not slow, but but methodically and safely during operations. So that is the way it worked when they deliver crew and cargo to the space station. If that template works for deep space for the moon, then we're going to have a very interesting future ahead of us. And that's the big promise of the, of the Artemis program. It's not just NASA astronauts jumping around on the moon for, for a couple of months. It's the opening up of the moon as a potential commercial enterprise. Um, and that is, that is interesting. And that happened in orbit um, in my, not just in my lifetime, just in the last few years. So imagine in 10, 15 years, what the lunar economy could look like. I never thought it would happen, to be honest. I've been covering space for 20 years, and and now it's closer than I would have ever imagined or even admitted in public, So, if that means anything. <laughs> it does. And the thing that really sticks out to me is that, like, uh, just that word corporate and, like, that sort of – that there's a commodified element to it now. Um, yeah. it, like, like, is this the new space race? It's not yeah. nation – it's not nations. It's It's billionaires. It's the only space race you can count on. It's not billionaires per se, um, although they're the ones who can afford the the entrance. Uh, it turns out, but they're the ones who are the uh, have the tolerance for risk. That's Bezos, mm-hmm. Branson, Musk, um, 
they, they brought that risk tolerance to the equation. But there's a lot of other slew of, of smaller companies that are following this template, intuitive machines, astrobiotic. Um, they're out there doing things that are very, very bold that only nations would do, um, landing things on the moon, for example. But the, the bigger point is that it's a space race is, again, a nation versus nation space race will end. Um, the funding will dry up, the geopolitics will change, Congress will change, the administrations will change. But commerce is a lot, is, is for lack of a better term, it's eternal. It gives you a reason to go there. It helps to have one. Um, if you can figure out a way to make money doing something in and around the moon, refueling other spacecraft or mining something or building space telescopes on for, for scientists and operating them, these are money-making endeavors fundamentally. Um, then you've got something that isn't dependent on a national budget or a national crisis or any of that kind of stuff. And that really is what doomed every other effort to, to get into space, to push humanity off the planet. There's never been a, 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 an effort that hasn't been tied to a government to do that before. So how could you expect it to be permanent? Um, Give it to the corporations and let them turn a buck or two and see what happens. In orbit, it has turned into many different booming businesses, actually. If, the, if you can replicate that in deep space, well, then there's no reason why you can't expand what you do with the moon to the rest of the solar system. Now we're talking about, you know, stuff that you read in science fiction books and you see the pathway to it. Um, it's a really interesting, I'm not saying it's going to work, but it's interesting that we're even trying as a species to do it, the best attempt ever. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, the Chinese are trying to do something very similar, but that's the most government run centrally <laughs> thing you can imagine. So yeah. now you've got two different philosophies going into space. And one is a pre-planned, you know, communist expansion, the hive going out there. And the other one is the, corporate free brooders going at that. It really is 1950s sci-fi. It's like, you know, and I know who I'm rooting for too, right? Like I, I like the idea of the more independent minded going up there and, and doing whatever's going to happen than, than the, you know, the current Chinese government, you know? So yeah, there's a lot going on in space and every piece of it is complicated, the engineering and the politics and the rest of it. But you turn into a 10 year old when you watch a rocket launch. So you get that part of it too. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. So that, that's an interesting, I hadn't considered that dynamic. And I think, uh, yeah, I think I would take that side too, because while there is risk, while like Elon and those guys are taking risks, it's different than like, I think the model and correct me if I'm wrong, that China would use where it's like, you know, life is, life is cheap. <laughs> like, let's just throw, let's just try it. And who cares? Like, who cares if people die? Astronauts are, are, aren't cheap. So they're, they're safe. But <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that you, you can't help but notice is that the Chinese space program drops its spent boosters on villages, literally. Oof, oof. So, you know, and they're filled with toxic chemicals. So yeah, I mean, if, if you want a change of approach, we've got like the Endangered Species Act slowing down SpaceX. <laughs> and in China, <laughs> we've got them literally dropping boosters on, on human beings. So, yeah, there's a there's a different change in philosophy. Now, in space, you know, they've been fairly responsible, except for 
um, anti-satellite weapons testing. But, you know, since since then, they've been the U.S. has done that, too, but more responsibly. Um, but since then, they they have they haven't lost people. They have made great advancements. They've stolen a lot of elect- intellectual property along the way to get there. Mm. Um, OK, I you know. Um, yeah, I guess at the end of World War II, we kind of appropriated some from Nazi <laughs> Germany too to get ahead. But who's 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 to, who's to point fingers? Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, space is just us up there. So you know, if the if the if Chinese have a long term plan to go up into space, they're going to bring right now a very sort of dangerous ideology up there. And yeah, countering that, we've got a slew of companies, some redundancy, no one's going to become the king of Mars, uh, even if Musk gets there and tries to make himself that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you need to be supplied, you need, a, a, you need commerce, you need to cooperate with people. And that is, uh, and it's a lot flexible, more flexible, brings a certain amount of freedom, if I could even use the word to, to the system, it needs that. And the Chinese side doesn't. So it's already going to be bad enough in space living in these very uh, pressurized has to run right almost you know military style precision just to stay alive you're giving up a lot of freedoms anyway just to be in that environment for any length of time it's gonna be bad enough right it's gonna be like living on a, a ship in the age of sail where you defer a lot of rights to the captain to stay alive that's gonna have to happen for a while the chinese are gonna be better at that so you know, we've got to maximize the advantages that we have, which is, you know, the freedom to be flexible, to do things, the redundancy that comes with businesses going up there, making money, um, permanency that goes beyond a five-year plan, right? I mean, the U.S. government can't plan for four years. The, the Chinese government tries to plan for five and then 15, 25, and then they put the plans together. They don't seem to work out that well, but they work out long for longer than the U.S. plans do. So, so I say unleash the capitalists. You know, uh, it's the only chance that we're going to have. And unbelievably, NASA is saying the same thing. And I didn't think that was going to happen either. But that is how they're planning on getting back to the moon. That's how they plan on beating China, which is a big priority for them. Um, Bill Nelson can't shut up about it. Uh, he's a NASA administrator. So, yeah, it's the race is on and we put our chips on a a bunch of upstart companies, um, not just SpaceX, but other ones. But in the U.S., you know, the the strength of the U.S. system and the the West um, up against the strength of the Chinese system. It's like it's classic 1950s sci fi, but it's actually, you know, not such a bad way of seeing what's actually what's happening right right now. So I. One of the many reasons I love talking to you is that, like, not only can I ask you what's the timeline on when we'll get to Mars, I can ask you what w- what's gonna, what's it going to be like when people die on Mars? Oh, okay. it was the the pop, popular mechanics piece you wrote. Was it for popular mechanics? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was fun. Um, you know, you don't really get to throw people in the biodigesters too much in, in popular <laughs> magazines. Not enough, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's, it was very grim and strange. <laughs> I, the the whole idea of the article was that it's going to be a huge achieve, achievement for someone to die of natural causes on Mars. So mm-hmm. the first person to die of natural causes is a is a huge milestone for humanity. Um, 
who might that be? What would you do with the body? How did they get there? Um, that was sort of backfilling the story of the first. Um, it was sort of female geologist, right? That um, I definitely want to put one up there for the geologist because planetary exploration is all about the geology. So, yeah. um, so I chose that pretty carefully. Plus, I like Harrison Schmidt, who's the only geologist on the moon. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, it, the idea was nothing goes to waste. Put her in the biodigester, you know, put a tiny little plaque up somewhere near a, a, a grove of trees and then sooner or later she'll be sp- sprayed on the trees um, that's that's life up there you know you don't it's gonna be different you're gonna give up a lot um it, it's it's gonna be trying to kill you the planet is is not accommodating and the amount of effort that it takes to stay alive will be extreme so this is you know this is not a great adventure. This is a hard adventure. Um, the, the payoffs are dying of natural causes. If you're lucky, um, mm. the, the risk is you get cancer early from the radiation or, um, the risk is that there's, you lose your resupply and you're dependent on earth. If you can't get enough flowing there resource wise, you can't develop it there then you're you're Roanoke. Um, so, you, you know, the, there's existential threats and then there's the personal sort of risks as well. You know, I'll ne- n- never being able to go home again and at the same time, not really having a future where, where you're at and being confined in these small spaces for the, for the rest of your life. It's, it's, it's more akin to, to prison. So you have to have a passion for what you're doing. And I, I, part of my thinking of that was excursions, you know, mm-hmm. professionals who are, you know, building on the work of, of other, of the other people around them. So it's a very social ex- experiment and there's scientists who spend their whole lifetimes, you know, b- before DNA analysis is trying to figure out the, the, the DNA structures of, of worms. And they mm-hmm. would just, they would die knowing that that work wasn't finished, but they were content to do it or monks um, in their isolation who are working dedicated on their books, they had something to occupy themselves. That was very worthwhile. That's going to, that's going to be who's there. It's not going to be artists and it's not going to be pirates. It's going to be professionals and loners and people who psychologically can dedicate themselves to that part of that environment that is interesting. So those walls, so the couple of hours they get every year out on the surface will be worth it because they'll be studying the results and otherwise you go crazy. Um, so all of that came in the players, all these things, how the challenges of Mars from landing to, you know, rate again, the radiation situation is pretty extreme traveling there and, and being on the surface and, and then psychologically, um, politically, you know, do you vote, you know, is, is it a mutiny if you, you know, if you get rid of the, you need a sort of a, you know, an ultimate commander to run the base, right? Mm. So does that person defer to a civilian authority or is that a, what is what is that role? No one has thought about any of these things. Um, and uh, I think that maybe fortunately, Elon's not going to be alive long enough to establish himself there. But there's going to have to be a system. And no one again, no one really talks about that part. Yeah, it's it's such an admirable and mysterious part of the human spirit that we're like, I will, we'll figure it out later. We'll, let's do this incredibly risky, dangerous, impractical thing. And usually involving exploration and, and, you know, it'll kill some of us, but we'll keep going. 
Um, so one thing that I'm I'm very interested in is um, Elon Musk has talked about like how AI, well, like the next world war could be caused by AI or at least driven by AI. Well, like yeah. what are the mechanics of that? Well, the mechanics of that is the guy, he's got an AI company and he's clearly <laughs> dangling some of his Elon bait out there to generate something or other. So, I, you know, I having met him a bunch of times and very respectful of, of, of his in, intellect and, uh, and his engineering acumen and, and all this and that, I, I don't buy any of his, his AI stuff. Um, you know, it, it, it's a tool like any other. It's going to save more lives and has saved more lives than it has ever imperiled. Um, you know, you, you, it, it enhances everything about data gathering and processing from missing airplanes to, you know, facial identification to gunshot recognition. I mean, just weather patterns, genetic analysis, uh, you know, anything that a machine can learn how to do. Um, discerning things, picking out things in patterns, that part of the, the repetitive part of, of what humans are good at, looking at a hundred different photos. Hey, that one has a Scud missile launcher in it. If the AI can do that in 15 seconds, that's better. That we've, We're flooded with data. <clears throat> I mean, you know, back in the day when I was covering defense in DC, it was the data deluge. What are we going to do with the mm -hmm. data deluge? We got information from this predator. We can't put it in the kill chain and use it to drop a bomb until two hours later. And then the, the target's gone. Solution right here. Oh, but you do the same thing with a satellite looking for a crashed plane or a lost kid. And now you start seeing, okay, the, the algorithms matter. The machine learning matters. So can the machine learn enough to be a, an actual threat? Like any other tool, yeah, sure. Is it going to drive the next world war? Every weapon system that's electronic and has a, a brain is going to be enhanced by AI. So I guess by the word for word, yeah, that is true. Is it going to spark World War Three? Absolutely not. Um, okay, you know, there's it's very very hard to launch a nuke. It just is. Um, one cool thing about working for Popper Mechanics is being able to go into two um, active parts of the nuclear triad. I never got into the subs, but I was in a B-2 uh, bomber and I was in a live ICBM missile You like briefly flew it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy took, went to the bathroom and, and left me in control of the, you know, two and a half billion dollar plane. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was pretty freaky. You, the, the turns are really slow, you know? So um, actually there was another B-2 close by. So if I crashed them together, it would have been, you know, more than $4 billion worth of damage and a huge part of our strategic deterrence completely wiped out. But through these experiences, I mean, those ICBM silos are, are, are air gapped, you know, they're they not accessible. They're not going to introduce anything into that system that'll make them less reliable. The targeting will may have AI processing, even though that's not strictly necessary. They're not shooting at moving targets. I suppose some of the security could be, enhanced by ai which is great you know the last thing you want is a nuke being tampered with <laughs> stolen or mm -hmm. um or even that it's you know the, the threat of that you know taking that silo offline so all right so on the cyber end there'll be ai there's not a huge role for ai in in in, in nukes certainly not in the command and control 
that is the tightest chain there is. And there's a lot of humans in that loop. So no, I, I, I don't, I don't buy the war games, uh, Terminator premise at all, because I think that's just people don't understand what AI is at all. Is it dangerous? Is it going to make weapons that can shoot on their own faster, more ubiquitous? Yes. If you're worried about robots on the battlefield, then yeah, you, you might be worried. You know, for me, I, smarter robots on the battlefield is probably going to be better than dumber robots on the <laughs> battlefield. But I, I, I kind of like robots. So that, that's just me. But if you're worried about it, that's something to be worried about. It's a legit worry. Worrying that an AI is going to get completely out of control and take over systems with its own sentience is pretty, is at this point idiotic. We should, we should be even close to that, please. Like the, the, like the AGI apocalypse scenario? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, uh, there are many apocalypses, my friend. <laughs> and there are many that I worry about, but that ain't one of them. <laughs> so uh, I was recently at a family gathering at my mother-in-law's and she had the Discovery Channel on. I like the segue it, of apocalypse to mom, to in-laws. That's good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of, <laughs> right. so go on. I'm sorry. I'm reading it. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and uh, it was cool because like, you know, I looked over the screen and I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's my friend Joe. Uh, it was the the show. It was the episode where you were Catch like a predator again. Damn it. It was the 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 nuke in North Korea episode. Um, but the thing that it was cool to be able to tell them was like, you know, so Joe is like, um, you're very much a data guy, you know, you were like a PI briefly, and then you were a data guy for AP and like, it was cool to be like, yeah, what he's doing there is it's, uh, it's not B-roll. Like he's really is like plugging into different systems and gathering data. Yeah, I got lucky and um, I've gotten lucky my, my entire career. I'm, I've put writing aside so many times and was able to pick it back up with these weird, weird ass skill sets. Um, but yeah, when I moved to New York, I fell in with a, a private eye firm. We did a lot of due diligence cases, um, uh, you know, pre-business looking into various basically business scams and scammers who were trying to circle back around and a lot of them caused a lot of damage in the eighties. And so in the early nineties or, or mid nineties, they're ready to come back to the trough. So we just had to un- uncover which of them were, were good and bad. And then the blackmail stuff and some of the people who would hire us for the due diligence, we're getting other kinds of trouble and we get called. <laughs> but these guys were dat- just database wizards and just reading through this looks wrong. This looks right. But, the best thing for me as a, as a journalist, I'd already worked at in newspapers in Corpus Christi um, and Mexico before I did the PI stuff was finding sources. They would find people to talk to. And that was the part of that investigations. Of course I really liked. And, um, but the finding them in the data, all right, you know, addresses and X's and, you know, uh, business relationships and, and uncovering all that kind of thing. And then, I, of course, I want to get back into journalism. So I did that exact same thing for the AP. Um, and those skills these days, that, that stuff doesn't age. It's not even just which databases to use because some of the stuff that AP was paying tens of thousands of dollars for, you can almost get for free online these days. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, that part of it is equalized, but the mindset of document, data, source, interview, um, verification, finding another one. It's part of that investigative process now that if you don't do that, you're, you put yourself back so, so much. Um, I, you know, when I'm writing books, I'm relying on a lot of the authors who came before me, I read their books. And then I think, wow, these guys really dedicated a lot of man hours into finding this source in Florida somewhere. And I found three more that added to that just by searching online, right? And I found one in Georgia, one in the Library of Congress, and one in a private collection. And I got that just like that. And the, this guy's doing it in the 80s. That's shoe leather work. So mm-hmm. I have tons of respect, but it, it, it makes me feel like I'm cheating a little bit because I'm like, oh, I can write rings around these guys. I have so much more info. I give those guys, you know, a, a reasonable a newspapers.com <laughs> subscription <laughs> and set them loose. And I'm sure they kick my ass. So I, I try to be, but at the same time, readers deserve the, the full, you know, the full weight of what we know right now. So um, even covering things that have been covered before, you can uncover a lot. It's, it's really a great time to do historical research um, for that reason. Which makes for a pretty good transition to, to Red Sky Morning. Um, but it's like, I still have a billion space questions. So we're definitely doing this more. Uh, <laughs> next time over some beers and for like three or four hours, just, you know, chatting. Um, Come get me to Starbase. I have to do that. You yeah, can let's do it. Right up to the fence line and stare at the rockets. Not when it's launching, obviously, but um, yeah, it is open. It's not open to the public, but it's on a public beach. So you go to the public beach and you get the whole tour of the rocket, um, you know, test facility from the giant satellite dishes to the, you know, to the big tanks, which are usually hissing and seething with pressurized gases. You know, it's a very, very cool, funky place. You know, it's just great to be able to swim in the Gulf and look up and just see you know, if you're lucky, you see a, a fully stacked Starship rocket just right there as you're bobbing up and down. It is really, really interesting. And you meet the coolest, wildest people from all over the world crawling around the sand dunes trying to get their, their space fix. It's a very, uh, it, it's an interesting place. There's never been anything quite like it in the history of the freaking world. And that's not even hyper, well, it's some hyperbole, but it's also actually really, really true you're never going to see anything like it and your kids will remember that they went there. So it is a, even if SpaceX butters to a halt and doesn't even achieve anything more than it already has, it's going to be spoken of as uh, as something that you would not want to miss out on. So yeah, man, come down. I'll give you a good tour. I can introduce some good people. Let's do it, man. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Cause it's a, uh, I mean, it's, Space is just so, um, it just captures you. You just like, even all the time we've spent in our lives, all of us just looking up at the stars and wondering, uh, you know, what else is out there? Cause there has, there's obviously a lot more out there. Everything, everything's out there. Yeah. Everything that's here is out there basically, or the ingredients therein. So aliens. Uh, yes, but not here. Uh, aliens yes ufos no okay i did a pretty uh, yeah i I talked to a bunch of the um uap 
pilots that and we're not well i talked to a pilot and uh someone who was on board one of the ships who saw the weird radar stuff and then went and saw the lights in the sky um and i'm not discounting anything that people are seeing is um but um but no i don't think that it's aliens like um even after speaking to some compelling witnesses they don't think it's aliens necessarily either they really don't know what the hell it is which is an important thing when you when you talk to military witnesses it's just enough to, for them to report that there's something funky in the in the sky or even more importantly on the radar screen i mean if you can spoof a radar <laughs> then that's a big security problem so i you know i talked to a lot of uh they call them old crows some electronic warfare people and mm. That's the kind of thing that they like to do. You know, your airplane is, if you have something on your radar that's doing something that's physically impossible, that's very frightening because it's probably being spoofed or jammed in some way. It's being tampered with so that you're not getting an accurate, literal reflection of what's out there. That in the digital age, that's scary. Hey, one target just turned into 15. Mm. Wow, that alien's really advanced. Or isn't that a really, really good defense system? You know, I mean, that's exactly what you want to do. You know, Doctor Strange style. Now there's eight of them. What, what do I, which one do I shoot at? Um, that's just classic tactics. So some of this overlaps into some pretty scary, spooky military stuff. Um, and yeah, there's, it's no surprise that they're seen near military bases and, you know, um, and aircraft carriers. The main suspects on planet Earth have interest in those things. So, you know, I don't think it's aliens. Alien life, most certainly statistically does mm. exist and probably in our solar system. And that's mm. just water-based. So yeah, the, the universe writ large teeming with life, absolutely teeming um, compared to what we thought, maybe not even so long ago, but with water everywhere and organics everywhere and comets and meteorites carrying organics everywhere, Come on, you're playing, you just play the odds in the size of the universe uh, as we know it. Come on, that's, there's no way there's nothing else growing out there. So is, is it like, is, is that the thing about um, like government tech is at least like 40 years ahead of what we even are aware of? Mm, let alone access to. Sometimes. I think that used to be a lot more. I think that used to be the case a lot more. Um, in some things, it still is. You know, there's certain aspects of, I think, computing and quantum computing and stuff like that that's ahead um, of maybe where they're saying. Um, certainly, aviation, stealth technology, who's, who's keeping up with that, right? But when the military really, really wants something, a lot of times they're increasingly turning in the private sector. Mm -hmm. If you think the military is ahead on AI, you're nuts. If you think they are ahead on robotics, you're wrong. Um, you know, the stuff that they're really ahead on is the things that no one else does, you know, the killing people part, um, <laughs> almost all of the rest of it, except for the specialized stuff, submarines, you know, okay. Of course that, although, you know, small sub manufacturers are making some strides too. So, but nothing to the military spec that you'd need. Um, but the, the point is it's, 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 it's not always the case. Um, you know, we don't go military first. The money isn't with military first all the time now. Um, startup companies don't think to go to the military as much as the military wants them to. They, mm -hmm. The Air Force, the Space Force, 
um, the Marines now as well. They're, they have these tech startup spark, com- you know, mm. um, like places where the inventors can come and, and the startup companies can come and they can get, you know, lightning fast rewards. It's almost like a shark tank. They call it spark tank in the mm-hmm. uh, Air Force. They bring in all these, you know, startup people around Austin and you can walk out with a tens of thousands of dollar contract that day if the military people in there see something in what you're doing. They want to build that relationship with that community. You don't do stuff like that unless you're hard up for the tech. You just don't. And they they need that edge. And so, yeah, in some ways you're right, but in other ways you're very wrong. And the military is freaking out about it. Um, and trying to do something about it, not just freaking out. That implies passivity. But whether or not it's going to work or not, these things are pretty new. And you can see where they're paying dividends, like the Army, you know, um, building up relationships with 3D printing companies that can print bases, you know, in, in a couple of minutes um, or a couple of hours or a couple of, you know, <laughs> it take a couple of weeks. So um, stuff like that, real enabling technology, the, the military isn't ahead on that stuff. They're trying to catch up. So this like shift from what towards the private sector that you just mentioned, does this like, does this mean that it's less, the advancements are less clandestine and there's like more transparency, not transparency in the sense of like, I'm a good guy. I want people to know, but like from a competition standpoint, the transparency stops because the intellectual property is Uh pretty well guarded. Right. So, you know, some things do slip into the black world, but I can only count on um, one hand when that has happened. I sort of what's what's remember, the black world mean? Um, uh, the, the the world of the clandestine operators, the gotcha. you know the CIA, the National Security Complex gets a hold of your invention and you never hear about it. Uh. The one I'm thinking of was a programmable magnet, so you could get a super superheat a magnet. And you can orient its or the the pole the, its polarity, so it doesn't have a north and a south. It has a pattern of polarity. It was genius. So you can do frictionless gears. You turn this, and there's actual the magnetic forces like linked to each other, and would turn the the other gear. All kinds of stuff like that. These weird applications. Um, but the first people that I knew bought it, and the last I ever heard of the company. Was um, and we gave him a breakthrough award. The magazine made a you know made a pretty big deal when when I found out about him. And um, it was a way to make a desk that had an unhackable lock. You have one one key, and you would just set it on the desk, and you turn it, and just like those invisible gears, the magnetic gears, it would open it. And you can't copy it. There's no way you could. It's the most. That is the last thing I ever heard of that company. Mm. <laughs> so where did they go what did they do how many uses for that can you think of i can think about a, a million oh, yeah. um, and most of them you know were engineering or spy based or something so it was very it was a very but that is the one time i've ever heard of anything like that um happening more it, it, it's more like the military comes in and the inventors you know um are you know, quote unquote inventors are very scared that their application is going to um, be pigeonholed and not get that wide acceptance. They all think they're going to change the world. Why would I just sell to the military? I'm going to be too constrained. And that's been the fear for a long time in that tech community. 
that's what the, uh, you know, these spark tanks and AFWorks and all these programs are trying to, to solve for. So, yeah, you know, you, you, you'd think that, yeah, the Pentagon's calling. Now my now I'm set for life. Now I'm going to have funding forever. And the reality is, do we want to take this money and shut out other venture capital funding? Do we want to take this money and be under the restrictions of a government program and any secrecy therein? And, you know, what if someone changes? It's not as stable as it used to be. You lose your, you know, benefactor. In like the a Pentagon new, new president. A new president. Oh, God. Gotcha. You know, then you've got a regime change on everything. Yeah. Now we don't care about Star Wars, you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we're all out of work now. You, you're not insulated from that. You don't have the redundancy that the private sector world gives you. So they're scared of that phone call sometimes, and they're not actively seeking military solutions for the stuff that they build. And that's a big problem for the military. That's been the case for 10, 15 years now. And, uh, and they're still trying to get better and better. And I don't know that it is. So I, uh, recently talked to a a space force guy and, um, it was, it, is it fair to say that the Space Force is like kind of a, um, an overlap between those two or um, is it like purely an attachment to the state? I, well, the Space Force is, I, you know, what is this? <laughs> the Space Force is still becoming the Space Force. So it's kind of hard to pigeonhole it even now, but um. I think they've done a pretty good job of not overlapping, but overlapping kind of where they need to. I mean, without overlap, then you're just standing by yourself and you can't get anything done. So mm. I'm a little more permissive of, oh, well, you do that. But, you know, you're involved in this, but so am I. Well, you should be. Everyone should be involved in space stuff. I mean, it's it's integral to, to all military oper- and civilian operations on the planet, pretty much. Um, so they need to be involved in a lot of things. But the things they control, I think, makes sense for them to, to control entirely. Now, when you get to the budgeting is when you get a lot of the knife fights. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's too dull to, to even to, to go over. But suffice to say, when you elbow your way into the table, someone else has to make room. And mm-hmm. that's caused some, some trouble. And I don't know if I reflexively am rooting for the Space Force because I like space <laughs> or something. Um, <laughs> And I think that their approach is usually leaner than the other ones, but it, it can, within a heartbeat, metastasize into some bloated, bureaucratic Pentagon thing. And I recognize that the seeds of, of evil <laughs> could be. <laughs> I want it to stay small. And right now yeah. they're content to stay small. And I, and, I, and I like that part of it. And I like that their um, outreach to innovation has is, is been pretty successful. The recruitment has been successful. Everyone wants to join. So they've got a lot going for them, um, probably more than I would have bet on. But uh, but yeah, they could turn evil very quickly. <laughs> but they do launch rockets without any hitch. And that's the most important thing they do is they, is they help run the Cape Canaveral range and, and the one at Wallops Island. And that is, those are stone cold pros, man. They are gotcha. very, very good. It's like, is it primarily... Defense that, that like it's, uh, they're launching a lot of satellites for defense, right? Is that correct? Uh, they <clears throat> they run the range. They don't even run the sats that launch. Um, huh. They have a couple of satellites. I take that back. But the National Reconnaissance Office, um, the Air Force uh, that, that have more. Um, 
So yeah, they, but they primarily have control of the ranges. And then they have a lot of, they call it space situational awareness, which is what the hell is in orbit. Mm -hmm. Um, I could go on for a long time, um, longer than anyone would ever want to know about all the different sort of the threats in orbit and, and how they're sort of developing. But there's a, an active, you know, hunt, uh, hunting cat and mouse kind of a game going on between uh, a lot of different satellites in orbit, a lot of sketchy stuff going on up there. And the space force is the one who is supposed to know what's happening. So if a Russian piece of space junk all of a sudden flares to life and changes its orbit or orientation or anything like that, um, it takes a lot of energy to change your orbit. So it's not a, it's not an accident. Hmm. Um, they, they're the ones who'd know about, Oh, something appeared on the space fence. Then they let everybody know they the military in the United States. They let the entire global satellite community know that something is happening up there. So they, so it's defense, but it's also enabling civilian commerce in space because if something happens, you hit one satellite, that satellite breaks up into a hundred pieces. Those hundred pieces hit another one. Those satellites break up. You get this horrible effect that could take out, you know, countless numbers of satellites in very valuable orbits. So it's a, it's a common threat and uh, space force is on the front line of letting everyone know that that's, that, that the threat is out there. So they do stuff like that, that straddles the line, just like running the spaceport between civilian and military. They run the, they help run the range that launches every rocket, um, the SpaceX, um, United launch Alliance class, military satellites, communication satellites, civilian satellites, Starlink satellites, they're all there. Um, they're all enabled by the Space Force base out there. So they do all that stuff um, quietly. And then they operate a secret space plane, you know, secret satellites, uh, you know, um, small sats that are probably masking a space junk, but are actually snooping on other satellites. They do all that cool stuff, too. Um, don't get me wrong. <laughs> they're up to all those shenanigans. But, um, yeah, yeah they're, they're an interesting group. Um, they're an interesting organization and, and where they go, I hope they stay small and I hope they stay lean and focused on these areas because it's a, it's a big enough mandate without them messing around with anything else. So red sky morning, uh, which is like, it's funny because <laughs> we're going to go back in time. What, what was it? hundred and it's late 1800s. Yeah. I, 1888 is, a, is one, of the, one of the big years. Um, in Texas. Texas Rangers. There they are. Well, there's like um, 70 or 80 for the, the entire state. It's, it, it, yeah. That, well, my book primarily uh, focuses on, on, on 10 of them, really. And I mean, normally Texas Ranger books are either 100 years of Texas Ranger history, good or bad, you know? Mm -hmm. And here's a dozens of epic characters, or here's one, and we're going to talk about every place he went, and every time <laughs> gold is gone or made a thing. And it's like, and those are, you know, they have those are not bad books by any stretch. Like, um, and I couldn't do mine without them. Um, however, you know, you take one company and you follow them through, you know, two or three years of service. Um, now you've got more of a procedural. You've got a day to day. How did they do what they did? Who were they? You know, the, who were the ones that you don't hear about? You know, who are the who are the down, prides? down to what they wore? Very yeah. detailed, like what they ate, who they yeah. shot. Why were they shooting them? Like you don't you didn't get that. 
conversation, especially when I was writing the book, when it was all Mexican revolution, you know, ethnic cleansing, that era, and then the, the later era, segregation and that. It's like, all right, well, but there's a there's a section in there where it's just core Texas Rangers doing stuff. And these were supposed to be the best Rangers of them all in history on um, the ones that sort of set the mold. So let's catch them early in their career and see the environment they came up in by following them on two or three really epic, violent confrontations over two years. Um, and what can you learn from taking that approach? And I had changed my view of them. I honestly didn't know a ton about the Texas Rangers when I started, and um, which I, you'd think would be a detriment. But then again, I'm, as I'm punching holes in what I thought I knew about them, um, I'm doing that for other readers as well. So I didn't know they relied on informants. I didn't understand what a special operations mindset they had. Um, covering the modern military and then talking about the Texas Rangers, I saw these elements of psychological operations that, um, you know, setting up a, a shooting competition just outside of town where you're hunting politically connected outlaws, you're <laughs> sending a message, right? Like, and that's the stuff that, you know, the, I trained with a spec, uh, a special operations team and a team that was going to deploy to Afghanistan. That's just kind of stuff they would do, you know, that projecting that image infallibility. Um, how do you maximize, how do, how do 10 people drop into a, a county where there's heavily armed, you know, outlaws who are protected by the local cops and courts? How do you do anything? Do you just show up and start shooting everyone? <laughs> Not necessarily, you know, the shooting had to happen. They would make the shooting happen. But if they would do it, maybe a lot more strategically than I think people give them credit for. Um, why would they launch an ambush instead of making an arrest and want to prompt a gunfight? You know, right, wrong, whatever. You do things for a reason. That's my job to tell you why they did it. Just, the guys were getting let out of court. You know, you can't make a mess. You can't stop the fence cutting that was happening. You kill a few, that's a message. You know, getting let off in the court system, that's not a message. So the governor wanted a message sent. You know, he didn't sell it, say kill those guys, but they... They set it up so they could kill those guys. They put informants in ahead of time. It was an operation is what I'm trying to tell you. Um, and then they would have to go. Their workload was extreme. There were, like you said, there weren't that many to cover the entire state. And the state was in an entire uh, in turmoil of transition uh, economically and socially and every other damn thing you could think of. Um, you know, and it's Texas. If you have huh. something, it's worth fighting over. And these were the guys who caught called in on the hard cases and on the opposite end, you got the guys they were shooting at and the, the main, I don't want to call them antagonists. It's almost like heat. There's almost twin protagonists. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the outlaw family in East Texas who have their own sort of, sort of path. And, you know, you throw these two immovable forces together and yeah, people, people are going to, are going to die. And uh, my model for this, for this book was heat for sure. Hmm. Um, these two storylines that they collide certain points and usually at those points his bodies drop right and um and that that was a i learned a lot about out, outlaws a lot of, about texas rangers but just a lot about how uh how the court system really left in place the need for these roving state-appointed gunmen it just seems like a horrible horrible idea and the ones who were good were, were very impactful and the ones that were bad were 
really, really terrible and down to the private. So, and you take a man by man and, uh, and they all have their stories of how they got there. And it, it's almost like a French foreign legion feeling to all the different backgrounds and what, why they got recruited and the lifestyle. It became a cop procedural. Hmm. Um, and, and I thought that part of it was cool. Instead of like a militia. Right. They're not a man of militia. They're not the guys that, that you see, you know, um, they were a lot more modern leaning. Hmm. Um, you know, after they lost their way in the Mexican revolution, they really tried to go back to it. Um, and but you do a good I, job of like, it's like they're putting on a tuxedo for the first time, like <laughs> just that transition into something that's a little more legitimate. Definitely. And no one knew what they were doing there, you know, or what their authority was. They just knew they were big. They weren't scared to, to draw and they had the backing of the governor. Uh, most importantly, they were, they were, they went where the governor told them to. And that brings an entire political dimension to whatever law enforcement operation they're doing that they would just plow through <laughs> because the, it really wasn't for them to adjudicate. They were just there to settle it down. The governor said, calm this down. We're going to calm it down. If calming it down means you return a horse <laughs> without arresting anyone for horse theft, then that's what you do. If if calming it down down means you leave a stack of bodies up by a fence line in the middle of the night, then that's what you do. And they had a wide range of options, and it wasn't always guns first. Um, so when they do go in guns first, there's usually good reason. And out in East Texas, their passions kind of got the frustrations got the better of them, and it opened the Rangers up to a really disastrous ambush that they have to shoot their way out of. So I like that. Um... I mean, you've always told like a good hero story and um, <laughs> anti-hero usually. Well, yeah, but it, it's like that's the nuance to this. And it's like it's great because, you know, you, you you're drawn back into 2020 and, you know, where they're removing the, the statue of the Texas Ranger. And it's like it's such a cool it's so nuanced because you're like, well, this these guys, the, most of the people they murdered are killed were white like this this is every a little more I, yeah. This yeah, is, every one of my guys killed in my book and that's not by design there's a one mexican man who's wounded um, <laughs> and, that was it. and i was like well but that is exactly what made it interesting that was not even just the racial component even though at the time it was so black lives matter and everything was so steep and why are the rangers being lumped in with cops and yeah. what era are we talking about and, and the fact that you know jose canales who is the Back in the day, he I, pretty heroically, you know, single-handedly pointed out all the excesses in that ranger force during the Mexican Revolution era. And um, but he was personal friends, not just, you know, personal friends with two of my rangers in my company, um, James Brooks and uh, and John Rogers. And he calls Rogers on the stand and says, the rangers are better than what these special rangers were. These were these guys are you know, are my friends and, and called him as a, a, as a not hostile witness in his very groundbreaking congressional testimony. So, you know, revisionism, not revisionism. Mm. I trust Jose Canales to know the good guys and the bad guys during the, you know, what do you, you know, what people call this ethnic cleansing in the Rio Grande Valley. I trust that guy. And that guy mm. said, these two guys are okay. <laughs> and I didn't know that <laughs> coming in. I kind of figured they were going to have some, some, some dirt under the collars and by God, the dirt I found, was there, but it had nothing to do with any of that stuff. It was more 
how did they do early in their careers? Did they blow a couple of cases? How did they get in their gunshots? How did James Brooks lose his fingers? You know, um, like Frodo, you know, what, what happened to his fingers? Um, that, those were the questions. So it was interesting that these are the paragons. These are the ones in the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame um, in the museum. They have their own displays. They're the paragons. And people don't really talk about their early careers that much. Um, but that's when they formed. And their, uh, their captain, William Scott, became this sort of unsung, massive figure um, who really taught these two how to do the job and how not to do the job. And his influence on these two rangers, he's not even mentioned in the museum once. And he's as epic as those guys were. And his influence is more is greater because he influenced the most influential Rangers. So um, so I, it was great to bring William Scott out. And again, his his, his record is not um, blemished by any of the excesses. And that's why these guys are so beloved in the modern era. They're, they don't carry that taint um, with them. So the Ranger defenders were always pointing to, to this generation saying, hey, the, these guys didn't do it. They prevented more lynchings than they ever caused. Stop it. Um, and it's true. Um, and that, that's convenient when you're trying to tell a story that has nothing to do with that era, nothing to do with that part of Texas, not those years. And it's a time when the Rangers weren't fighting external forces. They were policing their own mm. white people who were cattle rustlers, white people who were fence cutters, were, uh, politicians who were crooked. These are their own demographics. But that means they can employ informers. That means they themselves can go in undercover. So you've got the dawn of the undercover era um, really settling in with the Texas Rangers going undercover. Happened three times in my book. And I didn't know it happened even once until I started digging into it. Um, those undercover operators were one of those reasons why 10 guys could walk into a town and know who to shoot, know who to arrest, know who to pressure, know who to blackmail, whatever it is that they applied, um, whatever pressure they could, political or, or you know, <laughs> lethal force, whatever it took. It's nothing with that intel. They had these, they, you know, that's how they did it. And I didn't know that going in. And when that backfires, like it did in East Texas, the whole, their whole, they become ineffectual and they become frustrated and then they go in guns first and then they get ambushed. I mean, it's a, it's a procedural on again, what to do and what not to do. And Brooks and Rogers, the, these guys, they're the ones who got shot. So you damn well know they learned the lessons. It, one of the things I, I like um, is that it was the book is like very much a confirmation that a, a lot of Westerns were pretty accurate. <laughs> like it was like, that's as a, I think, especially as a man, but like as a boy, when you're growing up, you're like, I really hope that it was like this. Um, how much, so you're very much big on the data, very um, big on like boots on the ground. What, what kind of reporting, like walking through the dust, um, shooting the guns type of reporting did you do? Yeah. You know, you, you, you try to do as much as you can because you're trying to connect to people and places and happened, you know, so long ago, how can you even approximate? So you go, you go there. One thing I did, I did go to like a, a, a SASS, a single action shooting society meet where they dress up in Western gear and blaze away with, you know, with real ammunition. And there's, you know, 
bits and they use real ammunition. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the coolest. And the best part is that some of them use black powder. The real enthusiasts. One guy had the black powder matters. Uh, <laughs> 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 that was the only non-period thing he had on him. And he, he was my guy. I'm like, all right, <laughs> for black powder shooting. <laughs> I learned more just walk him walking me through his rigs and, and what it's like to shoot that thing. And, and just the fact that you pull that trigger and the whole world disappears. Any witness testimony is, Im- is immediately gone with a full black powder charge, especially in a confined space. So uh, for a procedural creature like myself, that's, that's gold. But, uh, but you get also the visceral feelings again of just like what it's like to, to, if you're on the receiving end of a Ranger fuselage, just how terrifying that must have been. Yeah. You know, eight to 10 guns, well-trained guns too. They could afford the ammunition to train. So they did. They could shoot fast and, uh, and, and they're good shots. That's lethal. That's modern levels of, of lethal force. Right. So it explains some of the, you know, some, some of the activity in the book when you know, but also that after that first volley, you're also shooting blind. So it explains some of the statistics of who gets shot when and where and how. Um, but the, the best part was uh, going to East Texas to co- to uncover stuff about the feud. Uh, my girlfriend and I went out there right in time for a gigantic ice storm, so we got huh. stranded in our in our cabin for several days um, with the generator running and just eating what we could scrounge. It was a fishing cabin, so we had to go raiding the the, the fishing supply shack. And that's perfect. And- Oh yeah, it was a, it was a nightmare, but um, <laughs> but the good news is that I met a descendant of one of the feuds' uh, first victims, and it was, that was great. He took me around to all the sites and the spots that still existed. Took me out into the woods where some of the shootings occurred. Showed me where the they dam they made a dam, and uh, so a lot of the actual kilograms were now underwater. Right, so. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, hard to get a sense of the ground. Even the trees are different because it's all been, they've been cut down and it's all regrown forest. So it, that part was hard, but then I hit the graves and I went to his relative's grave. He showed me where the family was, the family, the Connor family was buried. So I was able to go up there, flew my drone around a little bit, got some, got some aerial shots. Um, and, uh, and then, and then he told me about the book. He said there was a, a author who came in through here and tried to do a book, uh, you know, and interviewed a lot of people who were relatives as close a, a, to primary sources you can get. I said, well, what happened in the book? He said, we never finished it, but he gave me essentially a very rough copy with all the interviews in it. I said, oh, wow. every one of these people are dead. Hmm. There's no one. And then the local version emerges and, you know, there's love twist, you know, a, a love triangle implied and not implied to just spoken <laughs> directly. Uh, you know, there's the, 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 the personal side of the feud really comes out. The attitude shift of these outlaws are the most wanted, most despicable people in town. And then after they're dead, and then they become the victims. and. And, I'll, and there's an innocent boy who gets shot down that really tips that dynamic from one to the other right at the end of the feud. And but to see that play out in their memories and then to hear about, you know, what happened afterwards and and the, you know, you know, one of the women goes 
goes pretty insane and is known as like the town crazy person. You know, I mean, the lasting impact of all this violence um, comes to the floor, you know, and not just the motivations, but the impact afterwards. Amazing. You don't get that unless you go, right? You just, you just don't. Um, and, and I spent, you know, two days with them and endured the ice storm and went out there and made the effort because you damn well should make the effort. That's yeah. the minimum we should do. So, um, and, and, and then getting the mood of that place because it is very insular and, um, you know, talking with people who live there 15 years who still consider themselves outsiders. Um, why was this feud so well covered up? Why did no one talk about it? Why don't people know about it? Like the Hatfields and McCoys, it was just as vicious. Um, the reason why is that they were all intermarried together. And as more than one person told me to, you know, told me, and then also, you know, said in some of these interviews, there was no reason. No one wanted to talk about it. Everyone wanted it to go away. Everyone was intermarried. Everyone wanted to keep the peace. Um, and then you start poking around online. It doesn't take too long. Before you see in the 21st century, some Connor defenders talking about the conspiracy to wipe out the, the, the family. And it's just an, it's an amazing continuity out there as well. So you can't go there without feeling that part of it also. Just that, you know, it's a creepy place. It's always been a creepy place. Um, it's the place that you go through to get to the better parts of Texas to settle. You don't <laughs> stop there. That was all, you know, so uh, it, it's, you know, that. You got to go, even if you think you'll find nothing, you're going to find more than even if I didn't find the graves or the book or anything, I would have gotten the sense of the place. And you, you don't get that from looking on you know, Google Maps. You also bring it down to like not uh, there's the visceral, the visceral side, but it's it's like twinned with the psychological and it's like this moment where the a ranger has to walk into a like a town that doesn't want him there on his own and he can't his hand can't sh- be shaky as it's going down to his revolver uh, you know and you capture that really well like the persona these guys have to project right down to like the the way their hats positioned and the way they're dressed that's spec ops those spec ops guys <laughs> We're going to Afghanistan and they had such a broad mission. You know, it was, and it wasn't just shooting and killing. It was build and protect something. So two of them were engineers, you know, so they were, had contracting to worry about and all this, you know, back end stuff you never associate with special forces, but they were, they train on everything, every piece of equipment that's in theater, because if they ever run into anyone. So the day I was with them, they were on a, MAVs, these gigantic vehicles, and they have an automatic, uh, a, a remotely operated machine gun on the top. So we're doing, we had two of these things and we're going and, and leapfrogging and shooting and doing all this stuff. And so you guys going to ride in these things when you go over there? And I said, hell no. <laughs> this is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to project. You know, we'll ride on the back of a pickup truck before we ride on this. If, if we're going to be seen by anybody, no Afghan is going to respect us rolling in the town in this thing. We look scared. He said, I said, well, you train on it. Here's well, what if we run into some U.S. Rain, Army Rangers or we have to get in this, we have to operate it or we're riding in it just through, through shit. We have to know how to do everything perfectly all the time because there's only a handful of these special operators. They only have that psychological edge. We know what we're doing. Follow us. 
do this. It, this is the right way to do it. You're walking into a, you're facing a town elder who's done the same thing in his environment for generations. And you got a guy coming to say, do it differently. You better be able to exude. You cannot show any hesitation that you don't know what you're doing. And U.S. troops would react to them the same way. So they want to impress everyone. That is their type A personality mindset all the time. Just knowledge and competency is like a, almost like a weapon or, or as an actual tool to shape the environment around you. It's not, a, you know, uh, so yeah, and that's every kind of weapon in there, every indigenous weapon, every enemy, everything is trained. They're action hero type, you know, train for that reason. They can't show it. So I did apply that to the Rangers because they, they did have that same, that the indoctrinate, not indoctrination, but the initiation of a young Ranger mm. is so, there's so much hazing and so much training and so much follow my lead and do this and don't back down and, and don't be afraid when you're on your own. Don't be afraid to be outnumbered because what you project is going to, that aura can save you that can save you from a confrontation. You can shape your environment just by walking in with your hat, just by the way you stare someone down, just by squaring off on someone or not squaring off on someone, right? Like the application of, of you makes a difference. And James Brooks gets into the Rangers because he sees a guy with that pulling his gun back down six armed guys in a, in a saloon, just backs them right the hell down the willingness and the capability to shoot and you have to have that self-confidence or you know that you can pull and put a couple guys down because they're not as good a shot as you that's pretty that's one kind of self-confidence but just the idea that you can beat them down with (laughs) with with that pistol or that you know you could just stand there and bluff them down Mm. or that people in that town are going to support you when you you know put the you know put the screws to, to someone who's been, you know, more like bullying them or terrorizing the town. These are all, you know, it's all part of the same. I'm uber competent. You know, it's all part of that coin. You're the best rider. You're the best tracker. You can't run from me. You know, if you pull, you're going to get shot. If you run, I'm going to find you, you know, that, that, that's just projection. That's just psychology. That's at least half of your battle right there. Um, and then when you do shoot someone that the, the, when you get the best effects is when you shoot them for a reason and it's, and it's sort of, I don't want to say planned in advance, but you know, that, that outcome was shaped in advance. So, you know, these, my guys early, early in the book, I try to disarm this sort of rambunctious cowboy. He's kind of a, kind of a jerk of a cowboy and, uh, and they wind up shooting him. And that causes them all sorts of legal trouble. Talk about a modern ramification. They get they get hauled into court by an unsympathetic DA and caught up in a political struggle. And there it goes all the way to the White House, that one. So, you know, um, but these other shootings, which to the modern eye see a lot more sort of egregious. Wow, they didn't keep I can't imagine they gave these guys a warning. They just sort of blazed, they jumped them in the middle of the night and blazed away almost immediately. Whoa, what is that about? That was considered par for the course. So you know, the revisionist party says that that's really screwed up, but that isn't. But, you know, that was the operating conditions of the time. And it it's, makes it hard to <laughs> makes it hard to compare, but it also makes it hard to just blindly root from one side or the other. It's all it all gets very nuanced. Um, but um, but at the time, it was very clear why they did it. So I try to leave the revisionism aside and state of the procedural why they did it 
And then you can sort of, you know, mull over morality if you want. I'm not going to get bogged down in it. I love that too. That like, that is one of the things I enjoy the most is that it's like, no, let's not, let's not bring critical theory into this, you know, uh, man, the, you mentioned spec ops. Those guys are, there's like nobody like them. They're like, they like truly believe there's anything they can do anything at all. And they, they mm-hmm. can do pretty well at a lot of it. That's what's like, incre- they're like truly incredible people. Yeah. I, I've seen enough of them now to, 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 to really be impressed. Uh, I mean, the, um, the Navy SEALs um, and the and the um, and the boat crews. I hung around the boat crews a lot, and you know, amazing. Um, but the but that I can do anything. Spirit can when when you get into the real world, you you see. Okay, well, uh, th- there was a, a a hostage situation when I was embedded in Afghanistan, and there's a spec ops guy. Um, who's in the room. And I had this weird situation where I could be everywhere. <laughs> um, but I, as long as I didn't agree to not write about it until the operation was done, basically when I got back to the States, they were basically rotating out and everything was going to be old news. Magazine, okay, that's fine. I can handle it. So I'm in the room and they're talking about this guy. The governor's son gets kidnapped and um, and uh, the, um, they the governor wants to uh, pay the ransom. It was his cousin. It wasn't his son. And he wants to pay the ransom to the Taliban. Like, oh, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> let's, you know, let's go and let's just get this guy. So the spec ops guy is all, all revved up and he goes, all I need is this. And he holds up a carabiner and just drop me in there. And, and, uh, and I look at the helicopter guy and I've been hanging around with these guys for two and a half weeks now. I know exactly what he's thinking. How high up is the village? And he's like, oh, it's got to be like eight and a half thousand feet up or not. And he's like, so you want to you want to go up there in a Chinook? And he's like, no, we can't go in a Chinook. Gotta take a Blackhawk. The engine's not going to make it. You can't. Like, Mister Gung Ho, you're going to get us all killed. Just shut up. <laughs> We're going to drop you off at the bottom of the hill. You can get your own goddamn way up there. So man, that's exactly what did. poor spec ops guy spent I think two and a half days up there. And next time I saw him, he was all sunburned, ragged tired he couldn't go to sleep for a couple of days he had an overwatch over the village where the guy was being held and uh he was in bed with a bunch of army uh, afghan national army guys and they were all getting high on hashish so he's afraid he's afraid to go to sleep because those are supposed to be his guards so he's up for a couple of days and they paid off the taliban anyway so it was just a big big waste in the I, end I, they I, just paid him yeah, this guy was going to go in a helicopter that couldn't make it jump into the scene with only a carabiner, just going down on a zip line and just liberate everybody. You know, it was like, all right, slow down, Captain America. How are you going to get there? You're going to hear that Chinook coming from 10 miles away. Get out of here. So, but yeah, but if he didn't have that, then he shouldn't be in spec ops. He's the guy in the room who's supposed to be like that. There's enough people in that room who were not like that. The only person in the room who didn't have a good role was me. <laughs> so, and he asked, he goes, he looked at me too. He goes, what are you, uh, uh, SIGIN? Signals intelligence. I'm like, oh yeah, that's like almost like an insult, right? Cause like, you're obviously not a trained operator. You're obviously, you know, you're obviously a bookworm of some sort. <laughs> um, so I went, nah, pop mech. 
because I was embedded with Popper Mechanics. I was gonna, yeah, I, I was gonna ask who you were um, covering for. Popper, Popper Mechanics let me spend a little over a month there. That's awesome. With a body armor and a and a photographer. With so the two of us bounced around there for for a while. It was pretty. It was pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, the, so then the, my helicopter guy was like, uh, the colonel's like, yeah, he's a popper mechanic. He's been with us for a while now. Don't worry about him. <laughs> and that sick ops guy went from, should I slit his throat to, okay, you're just in the room. Like no big deal. Just like that. Like it no, was just, no more performance. It, or? it was, went from like the shock of, should I hit him? Should I, I gotcha. just, it was, it, it really went from, you don't belong here. Hostility. It, it was, it was hostility. To complete acceptance huh. immediately upon the colonel goes back. Ah, he's all right. He's been with us for a while. But he heard yeah, Popper Mechanics, Embed, Journalist, Media Guy. And that was everything in his DNA was just like the hackles up, you know. And those guys just can, like we're saying, like they can exude, you know, if they don't want you. It's almost like infrasound and like a lion roar. It's like they can project some serious hostility in your direction. And it's uncomfortable, you know, so, but, and then it was gone and then he was totally cool with me being there and we talked a little bit and I talked to him when he got back, he gave me like a really mini debrief. And then on the slide told me about the, uh, getting about the payoff so I could confirm that. Um, so that was, that was all cool. It all went into an article, um, online, that one was just online, but, uh, yeah. That was that was cool. That was good stuff. Spend time with these people like that, and you start seeing it in other, even self-professed elite teams or elite, you know, groups. These small, tight-knit, gotta get it done, you know, in the pressure cooker type organizations, and uh, and and the Rangers qualify for that. And talking with, and I was I was happy. Talk, I met up with the Texas Ranger. Well, I guess it was a couple months after the book came out and I was talking to him about that a little bit too. And he's not a, you know, he, he's not the perfect physical specimen. He's got a belly and he's not all that big and, you know, um, but there's nothing about him that said he couldn't kick my ass or kill me or, you know, go on the dance floor and, and dance with my girlfriend and like, and I wouldn't worry about it. It would have been, he was very, very in control like his wife had a couple of cores. He drank nothing. He drank, but he drinks at home, right? Like I talked to his wife a lot more than him, but, um, but he, 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 and I said that too. I'm like, you're not, and I'm like, I know that you drink, but you're not drinking here. And he's like, don't drink in public. I'm a Texas Ranger. Like huh. it is a controlled yeah. performance at the banquet. And I'm there drinking wine and making speeches <laughs> and the fool and all this. And he's just, and so, and his wife's having a good time and Amber's having a good time. And, and he was having a good time in complete and utter control of everything and everyone he talked to. And when the judge who was like, had some problems, came over, talked to him, he was very polite and eased the hell away. Like he was the Texas Ranger there every single second. And, and, uh, and it was good. It was a little validating to talk to him about that a little bit too. You're always a Texas. He's I'm going to have this hat on. I'm on, I'm on. And this is a, I'm on duty basically now is basically what he was saying. A banquet, you know, in, in, uh, at the James Brooks, um, in, uh, the museum in Falfurrias that has like, you know, all James Brooks's memorabilia. So, um, and it was, it was amazing, the continuity and, and talking about his lifestyle 
with his wife and how that was the same. You know, that was really cool, too. She was really very uh, illuminating on that human side of it, because that was that was part of it, too. You know, when you talk about these people, you got to talk about their families. You got to talk about that aspect because it was important to them. Me, I don't care. I'd love to write a book where none of that was in there. But um, but uh, that would be a disservice to history (laughs) and my readers and my subjects. But um, but yeah, uh, it helps when there's a romantic uh, entanglement. But these, you know, these are pretty faithful. Well. I shouldn't say <laughs> these were pretty d- devoted, maybe over time. They would never divorce. That, that's what I mean. They'd stick with each other a long time. So they're big players in the story. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I work with a, a former SAS guy and he, every once in a while he'll talk about like the training and it's, I mean, there's like, you know, keep them, keep them up for days, have them like, you have to remember these complex coordinates recite them whenever you're not eating you got to like control your body like because you know uh, you know and then say oh let's go jump in freezing cold water and you know you got to stay in there i mean it's just it's incredible so it's it's funny to hear that that um that goes into like like a texas ranger as well yeah the incessant training was one of the (laughs) things that I, i never gave them credit for and they would have those shooting competitions all the time. I mean, yeah, you send them up outside of town and send a message. Sure. They would do it anyway. Mm. Shooting from horseback, different ranges. Everyone had their, um, had their, you know, um, had their weapons, but they'd cross train on others. You know, um, they'd have their preferences. Um, you know, Frank Hamer, you know, he liked, he liked his rifle, but he would shoot and he would never shoot from horseback or Mm. seldom trained for it like crazy just in case like that mentality. Um, and he was a member of gun clubs too. I'm writing a book and, and Hamer is a big, big part of it right now. So we got Hamer on the brain, um, even though he's not in red sky. So, um, but, but, but that, but again, the mentality, you have to be an, uh, an ACE shot. You have to be an ACE detective later. Um, that, you know, you have to be an ACE tracker it was more in my, the red sky days, like, you know, the, the ability to follow, a horse trail is is pretty pivotal when you're chasing horse thieves, right? And that was a big mandate of theirs for a long time. It, that, that turned into cars and machine guns later, but mm. same ethos. You're man tracking, right? You're 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 hunting people. How do you do that in the 1800s? That's that was my interesting question. I get it a lot more in the Hamer era. I didn't understand it before Red Sky before I got into it, and the human element was big. The investigative element using marked bills, using the undercover and the informants and, um, you know, some of some of that stuff was and the, and the, the sub you know, the um, all that cloak and dagger type stuff. Um, you only see the gun fighting in the movies. You yeah. don't really see the hundred things that lead up to the gunfight that determine who wins and who loses. And that that's Red Sky. That was my. That's what that turned into. It turned into how did both those people wind up at the bank in heat and why did the, you know, and who ends up dead and what happened after it. But that, again, that template was like my, was like my guide, my, my guiding star through most of that process, just how to make them both sympathetic uh, or at least understandable mm. and collide them into each other and then see what happens. And that was, you know, and then you add horses and then you got, you got my book. It's out on paper paperback pretty soon. 
Uh, yeah, no, paperback just came out okay. uh, in the middle of November. So yeah, that's that the paperback just came out. So where, where can people find you? Oh, well, God, well, Amazon, um, and Barnes and Noble. You got a good um, Twitter. You do tw- Twitter huh? pretty well. You do X pretty well. Twitter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm X proficient. <laughs> I don't, I don't have my blue check anymore, but, uh, but that, yeah, I mean, and you can find them on, uh, uh, I, I have a website too with links to all the books and everything. Um, which is just joe-papillarder.com, I guess. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty easy that there's the paperbacks of the last two should be in target and Barnes and Noble on the shelves still, but, um, but it's easier to order online, obviously, man, it's always good talking to you, brother. You too, man. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're all doing well. Yeah, man. you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.